Lord, we can imagine that trumpet sounding at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. Not far, but not there. And so as we plunge into this mini-series that continues today, engage our minds, address our hearts, open up our spirits to know how we should proceed until that day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I need to remind you that this mini-series is taking as its theme words spoken then written by the Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana. Put it on the screen for you, title of our mini-series, The Santayana Factor, Tales of the Kings. This man wrote five volumes of philosophy. He was a philosopher. Went to Harvard, taught at Harvard. He was Spanish, became American. Nobody remembers the five volumes, but this line has been immortalized. You've heard this line before. This is the undergirding for this mini-series, Those Who Cannot Remember the Past. This is Santayana now. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You've heard that before, haven't you? Of course you have. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it again and again and again. So here's the question. Anything going on on this planet right now that might might be proof of the veracity, the validity of Santayana's observation? How about in the area of the economy? I want to share a blog with you. A friend of mine, Dan Houghton, found this blog and he sent it to me. Marketwatch.com, CBS's big uh, economics uh, website. It's a blog written by Paul Farrell. And I'm telling you, when you, see the t- when you see the title of the blog, man, it'd catch anybody's eye. So here's the title. Warning. Well, that'd get your, eye, that'd get your attention right there. Warning. Crash dead ahead, period. Sell, period. Get liquid, period. Now, period. I'm telling you what, you read this blog, and I'm going to be candid with you. It's rather sober stuff, this analysis of market and economic trends. And I've got to also confess a rather stiff medicinal recommendation, and that is liquidate everything you have in the market right now. I, I am utterly a layman. In this realm, I have no way to tell you whether that advice is good counsel or not. But here's why I'm sharing the blog with you. Tucked inside the blog is an intriguing interview. It's an interview with uh, Noriel Ribini. He's the economist who, back in 2006, accurately predicted the global recession that we've just gone through. So he's getting all kinds of face time now in the the networks and um, on the web. I saw that blog... Inside the blog, I saw the interview. It was an interview with Charlie Rose, I believe probably the most skillful interviewer today in our nation. Charlie Rose is interviewing interviewing Noriel Rabini, and he does it at Business Week. So I went to Business Week to find out, is this really the actual quote? Sure enough, it is. And Rose begins with this question. Here's the question. By the way, Rabini has written his, his new book, Crisis Economics. Crisis Economics. So Rose begins by asking, what have we learned from these crises of capitalism? Rubini replies, all right, this economist replies, put it on the screen for you. The first lesson, he writes, the first lesson is that crises are not black swan events. Now, hit the pause button right there. Let me ask you something. Is a black swan, have you ever seen a black swan? Are they, are they common or are they rare? They're extremely rare. We were over in England. We saw a black swan back in April. But they're rare. So that's the point. 
Rabini is writing, the first lesson about crises is, is that they're not rare events. They're not black swan events, using the terminology of my friend Nassim Taleb. They're not just random outcomes, these crises. They're the result of a buildup of financial and policy vulnerability and mistakes, excessive risk-taking, leverage, debt, and so on. The first chapter of my book is called The White Swan. Because I want to tell you something. These things happen all the time. So he he, he entitles his first chapter. The first chapter of my book is called The White Swan because these events are predictable. Now, here comes the line that I want you to see. But... Generation after generation, we seem to forget the past. That's the point. We keep forgetting the past. When there's a bubble, there's euphoria. There's irrational exuberance, to quote Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Fed Reserve. There's irrational exuberance. Consumers can use their homes like ATM machines. Governments and policymakers are happy because they get reelected. Wall Street makes billions of dollars of profits. Everybody's delusional, end quote. Isn't that amazing? White swan events are not so rare. But, he says, the problem, what's that line again? Generation after generation, we seem to forget the past. Here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. Could that be true of the church as well? Do we forget the past? So that we're condemned as Santiana opines, we're condemned to repeat it again. And again and again. Reminds me of these words written a century ago. Put it on the screen for you. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord, the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. What's the danger? Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so we come to this mini series that has been prepared for us journeying toward a place called Atlanta. Two weeks from today, 50,000 people will be crowded into what's called the Georgia Dome in that peach city of Atlanta. The world leaders of our community of faith, delegates from every region and every country on this planet will be gathered. New leaders will be elected. The business of the church will be conducted. And I'm wondering to myself, the Santayana factor, will we have learned the lessons of the past or will we be condemned again to repeat it over and over and over? And so in this miniseries, Tales of the Kings, we come to king number three. We've had two kings before. We have one king. It ends next week. Today, king number three whose reign has implications for the leaders of this church, whose reign has implications for the church herself, will we learn this time the lessons of the past? Open your Bible, please, to king number three, who, by the way, let me just tell you his name before we even open the Bible. His name meant the Lord Yahweh. All right? The Lord is my strength. Can you imagine that name? If that were your name, every night when your mother goes out on the porch to call you in for supper, she's yelling all over the neighborhood, the Lord is my strength, come on in. Yo, the Lord is my strength. Supper time. Every time your name is yelled, the testimony is made. What a powerful name. And guess what? The Lord was his strength for a while. Let's find him now. See if you can guess who it is before you look it up. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Open your Bible. Let's find king number three. We've picked four kings out of the lineup. Content for our mini-series, Heading Towards Atlanta. Second Chronicles chapter 26, 
If you didn't, oh, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Please grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Let me give you a page number so you can get right to it. Page 312. This, is, this would be Second Chronicles chapter 26. The Pew Bible is the New King James today because the story is told best in the New International. I'm in the NIV. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 26. Pick it up in verse 3. Who's this king who when his mother called him? The testimony went out, the Lord is my strength. Yep, there it is, verse 3, Uzziah. Probably pronounced Uzziah, but we as uh, Anglos, we pronounce it Uzziah. There he is, verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. Can you believe that? I tell you what, when your daddy is king and he's assassinated, it doesn't matter what age you are, if you're a boy, you're the next king. He's 16 when his dad is cut down. Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. The longest one I could find was 55. So we're pushing. We're pushing the max. He reigned in Jerusalem 52 years and his mother's name was Jecoliah and she was from Jerusalem. And oh boy, here comes verse 4. And he did, hallelujah, aren't you glad this is there? And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father assassinated Amaziah had done. He did what was right. Sixteen years old. Do we have any sixteen-year-olds here? Anybody here sixteen? Yeah, we got one. Good, good on you, girl. Any any other sixteen? How about any teenagers? Anybody a teenager here? Be proud that you're a teenager. Put your hand up. Yeah, good. You know what, folks? Let the record show that teenagers can lead. You think about that. 16 years old, leading the nation. The mighty kingdom of Judah. Teenagers can leave. We sell our teenagers short, don't we, when we decide that they are simply too young to lead. Can't let them lead in the church. You wait your time, boy. You'll get old enough one day. 16 years old and he's leading. After all, the story of this movement begins with a 17-year-old, doesn't it? Wasn't she 17? 17. Come on. 16 years old, he goes to the throne. 12 years old, he's worshiping in church one day at 12 years of age. And it occurs to him that he is the Messiah of the human race at 12. We sell our kids short, don't we? Ah, You can't get into this. Stay out, stay out. Your turn will come. Uzziah's turn came at the age of 16. Three weeks ago on my blog, I quoted from the latest survey of George Barna, the Christian demographer. Let me share this with you. Fascinating. Barna did a survey of 602 teens here in the United States. And he asked them this question. In 10 years, what do you envision in your life? Okay, 10 years from now, what will your life be like? The number one prediction of our teens today in America, number one, 93% of them, by the way, declared that by the age of 25, this would definitely or probably happen. And that is top rated priority for the future. I'm going to finish college and have a degree. Isn't that great? 93% of them. That bodes well for a university community like this one, doesn't it? 93% said, I'm going to finish school. I'm going to have a college degree by the time I'm 25. Number two, I'm going to have a great paying job. 81% of them said, I'll have a great paying job. Dream on. (laughs) Number three, I'm going to have a job that make a difference. I love that one. That's just 1% behind it, 80%. I'm going to have a job that I'm going to make a difference. Number four, I'm going to have a close personal relationship with God. Isn't that great? 72% of them. 
Number five, I want to travel to other countries. Six, I want to be actively involved in the church or faith community. Seven, I want to be married. That's 58% want to be married in five in ten years. Number eight, I want to regularly serve the poor. Good for you. That speaks well for college kids coming here, getting involved in Benton Harbor when the kids all come back. Number seven, I want to be married, 58%. No, no, we already did that one. Eight, regularly serve the poor, 48%. Number nine, have children by ten years, 40%. And I'm glad it's number 10. To be famous or well-known is way down 26%. I want to be famous in 10 years. Isn't that something? Those are our teens. By the way, George Barnum makes this point. I want to share this with the teenagers who are here and the parents and the youth leaders. Speaking of youth leaders, by the way, do you know what? Finally, God has answered our prayer. We carefully searched and we found him. We have a brand new youth pastor. I'm going to introduce him to you on July 10. His name is Michael Getz. Coming to us from Bucks County. Right on the edge of Philadelphia, PA. We've already come to love him. You're going to love him too. Very impressed with this young man. He's young. We're lowering the median age of our pastoral team every single new inclusion. Early, early 30s. You're going to like him. But listen to this. He'd be interested in this too. Teenagers, parents, and youth leaders. Barna discovered, do you know what he discovered to be the predictor of future religious activity? How do I know that my child will still be active in 10 years? Here's what they found out. 60% of the kids who are active now in church as teenagers predict that they will be active in 10 years. Only 14% of those who are not active in the church now predict that they'll be active in 10 years. Here's the predictor, folks. An engaged future is predicated upon an active present. You want your kids to be involved in the church in 10 years? The key is active church attendance now. Teenagers, you're doing the right thing. Stay active now. In 10 years, you will be. It's It's the dominant predictor. Thank God for these 16-year-olds like Uzziah who say, what do they say? I want to have a close personal relationship with God. 72% of American teens. How about 100% of pioneers' teens? Yay. Read verse 4 again. And he, Uzziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. Verse 5. And he sought God during the days of Zechariah. That's a prophet. This is the only place in the whole Bible this prophet's mentioned. Don't, this isn't the Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament. Just before Malachi, that's, another, that's a post-exilic Zechariah. This one, only time he appears, right here. But isn't that something? Verse 5, He sought God during the days of Zechariah the prophet, who instructed him in the fear of God. We're going to notice something next week about every one of these kings. They're all tied to prophets. And their fortune is tied to the relationship with the prophet. Very interesting about leaders, spiritual leaders. We'll get to that next week. He's tied to Zechariah. And Zechariah teaches him the fear of God. Wouldn't that be the kind of spiritual leader you want? Somebody who has a fear of God in her heart. Somebody who has a fear of God in his soul. Fear God and give glory to Him. And worship Him. That's the kind of leaders we ought to be praying for. Ah, look at verse 5. He sought God during the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And I love this little editorial comment that slipped in by the historian. As long as he, Uzziah, sought the Lord, God gave him, what's the word? Success. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. That line is so crucial, I wish you'd write it down right now. Pull out your study guide. Where is it? Tucked away in your worship bulletin. Would you pull out your study guide, please? Ushers, thank you for getting the study guides right now. Hold your hand up if you didn't get a study guide. We want to make sure that you have one up in the balcony as well. You've got to jot this down. And those of you who are watching, we're delighted to have you today. You can get the same study guide. Let's go to our website. If you wouldn't mind going to our website, let me put it on the screen for you. 
You see it there on the bottom of the screen right now, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for that website. And then you're looking for a little mini-series called The Santayana Factor, Tales of the Kings. And this is part three. There are only four parts. And by the way, if you've missed the first two parts, they're already sitting as podcasts on that website. And you can listen to the first two at your own leisure. But look for part three right now. And where it says study guide, click on the study guide. You'll have the same study guide. And I wish you would join us in scribbling it down right now. Talking about a cause and effect observation. Cause and effect. Let's jot it down. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 5. As long as he sought the Lord, would you write that in, please? As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Cause, he sought the Lord. Effect, God gave him success. He seeks the Lord. Effect, he has success. Cause, he seeks the Lord. Effect, he has success. Cause and effect. Powerful reminder for Christian leaders, wouldn't you say? Powerful reminder. Makes you wonder, by the way, if this could be true about churches and denominations. Could it be true about churches that as long as they sought the Lord, they had success? As long as they sought the Lord. Denominations. As long as she sought the Lord, he gave her success. Hey, listen, Pastor, does that mean then that as long as I seek the Lord, I will never fail? No, wait, wait, time out. Nobody said, you, nobody said anything about failing. Although you've come to learn this, haven't you, in your short life? Boy, I have. <laughs> Man. Hasn't it occurred to you that how you define failure and how God defines failure are two very different matters sometimes, have you noticed? What looks like utter tragic failure and burnout to you turns out to be a win for God. Have you noticed that? I mean, please, being sold by your brothers as a slave, wouldn't that go down in any book as a rank failure in life? How could it get any worse than that? Yet it turns out that it was God's very crooked pathway to the prime ministership of the greatest empire of the time. I mean, please, being forsaken by your closest companions on earth and then forsaken by God as a crucified common criminal, wouldn't that go down as a colossal, abject failure? Wouldn't it? But as it turns out, it becomes the most significant and spectacular victory in the history. Calvary. In the history of the universe. So obviously the way, God, the way God defines failure and the way I define failure are two different perspectives. In fact, would you jot this down, please? Jot it down, will you? As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. means that the failures you experience along the way are in fact victories. They're victories in disguise, are they not? Some of you right now are going through some immense failures. I've talked to you. You are really struggling right now. Professionally. Financially. Your marriage is struggling. Your academics have tanked out. You, if I were to ask you right now, or anybody here would ask you, would you define your life right now? You know how you, you would define it? You'd say, I'm a failure. I'm a failure right now. Because I'm not making it. I want to remind you, my friend, that if you will let God author your biography, those failures turn out to be secret win-win victories. And you wait till the surprise ending of your story. Everybody's told you your life's a failure. You wait till the surprise ending. You let the author of the universe write your story and you've got a surprise ending, sister, awaiting for you. You're not a failure. And I'm not talking about the surprise ending that uh, 
that king number three has. You don't want this surprise ending. Trust me, you don't want this one. I mean, let's get the recitation of Uzziah's obvious military prowess. I mean, the guy was incredible. He was a military genius. We'll skip all of that. By the way, do you know that he was so, he was so, his reputation was so far wide that even in the annals of the Assyrian kings, and in particular Tiglath-Pileser, 745 to 727 B.C., he is mentioned, Uzziah is mentioned in the Assyrian king's annals. Boy, this guy, this guy is great. Here's the name that the, that the archaeologists have found. Let's see if I can pronounce it right. Azriau. That doesn't sound like Uzziah, and it doesn't. But in the book of Kings, he's not called Uzziah. He's called Azariah. Okay? Azriau of Iauda, a Judah. Azariah of Judah. He makes, the, he makes the annals of the Assyrians. We'll skip all of that. Pick up the tail end. Just look, look at verse 15. We'll pick up the tail end of this mighty reputation. Built over years, I'm sure, that Uzziah had. Pick up verse 15 right at the tail end. And in Jerusalem, he, Uzziah, made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and, hold on, hurl large stones. What kind of a machine does that remind you of? That's a catapult. Absolutely. He had them long before England. He had them. And by the way, he could shoot multiple arrows. The first machine gun, arrow machine gun in the world. Ten of them go out. Brilliant. Ah, read it again, verse 15. He made machines, as I did in Jerusalem, by skillful men for use on the towers and in the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. Now watch this. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped. Greatly helped by whom? Oh, that's a little, that's a little, little device of the historian to say, hey, don't forget, all of this fame, all of this success, it goes back to verse 5. As long as he sought the Lord, the Lord gave him success. That's a little clue, a code stuck in. He's been helped. Don't you think he was doing this in his own? He's been helped. He was greatly helped until... Isn't that sad? Why do they have to put the word until in, in our biographies? Why do they have to slip that little word but in? Because that's what's coming next. Until. Until he became powerful. But. How many, how many life stories have pivoted on the hinge? But. Then she... And the story goes, but, listen, when they're writing your life story and they're writing mine, make sure they don't put that pivot in, okay? Let's just make sure. But, verse 16, after Uzziah, the Lord is my strength, come in for supper, Uzziah, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Would you write that down, please? That's a key point. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride, jot it down, his pride led to his downfall. All the accolades, all the successes, all the power went to the king's extremely vulnerable head. And one day he's feeling his heady oats and he goes stomping into the new church. He grabs an incense censer and right in front of the priest, he's moving straight toward the curtain. On the other side of that curtain is the most holy place, Shekinah glory. He's going to burn incense because he's the king and he's famous and he has success. And now he rules. He's going to burn incense to God on his own, forgetting the tragic story. How could you forget this story? How could you forget the story of Korah, Datham, 
and Abiram. How could you forget it? You remember that story? 250 princes of Israel. Children of Israel on their long, winding way to the promised land. You remember those 250 princes? They say, hey, Moses and Aaron, who says you guys are the leaders? We're running for office now. We can lead 250 princes, including Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Step up and say, I'm running for office. Elect me when the vote is taken. God says, all right, we'll have a vote. Give everybody a censor. 250 of them. All right, stand right there. Vote was taken. Only one is left standing alive. Aaron, God's chosen one. Boy, did God make it clear to that community of faith that men and women may have ambitions for the highest office in the land, but only God chooses the spiritual leader. That's what we need to be praying for in two weeks. Only God chooses the spiritual leader. Very human process. But only God makes the selection. Uzziah tragically forgot that whole story. He forgot that all his successes were but the fruitage of his utter dependence upon God. And the Lord God made him successful when he trusted in him. How sad. So you got the story. I might as well read it to you. It's a sad ending. Verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense right before the Shekinah glory on, that cur- on the other side of that curtain. Verse 17. Azariah, the high priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord follow the king in. Here comes the high priest. Here come 80 other priests. The king is heading straight for that curtain. He's going to offer. I don't care what anybody says. I am the king now. He's reaching down for that incense. And Azariah and the 80, it says courageous. You bet it's courageous because in one word, your heads are off. But there comes a time when you have to speak truth to power. John the Baptist stands in front of Herod and he knows it's going to cost him his life. So I want to tell you something, king. The woman that you have is your wife. She is not your wife. She is your brother's wife. You are committing adultery with her. Lost his head. When you speak truth to power, you don't weigh and evaluate the consequences. You just speak truth to power. That's what Azariah and the 80 did. And some of you will be in a place one day where it will be required of you by Almighty God Himself to speak truth to power in a humble Selfless way. And God will speak through you. Eighty priests follow the king right up to that curtain. Verse 18, they confronted him. And they said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary For you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord. And then watch this. One sin always leads to another. And so not only now is he trying to usurp his authority and power. Watch this. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. And while he was raging, so he explodes into rage. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Leprosy. White patches. All over his forehead. Leprosy. 
leprosy broke out on his forehead. And when Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Go, 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 go. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. This wasn't a little symptom that suddenly showed up. This was it. And he knew it. And so, a sad story, isn't it? 21. Verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. We don't know when this happened. He lived in a separate house. That's what the Levitical law said. You've got to be separate from everybody. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land as a co-regent. Verse 22, the other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And in the year King Uzziah died, I was in that same temple and I saw the Lord. The call comes to that young prophet at the year that Uzziah dies. Verse 23, And Uzziah rested with his fathers and was buried near, not with them, near them in a field for burial. Couldn't be in the king's cemetery, but there was some royal property nearby. He was buried in a field that belonged to the kings, for the people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. A tragic ending to so promising and successful a beginning and a middling. Great beginning, great middle. Ah, you were this close. Two swans, one king, three lessons, and it's lesson number three that catches us by surprise. Jot them down. Lesson number one. Would you jot it down, please? Start strong. Depend on God. Lesson number one. Start strong. Depend on God. He sought the Lord, and as long as he did, God gave him success. The secret to spiritual leadership is to lead out of a posture of utter dependence upon God. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, hey, Dwight, I'm not a leader. And you're talking about spiritual leaders. I am not a leader. I'll tell you why you're a spiritual leader. If you love God and follow Him, and you wouldn't be here if you didn't, you have influence. You have spiritual influence. I'm reading a book right now by Tom Rath. It's a new leadership book called Strengths-Based Leadership. I'm amazed at the categories of leadership he exposes, Rath does, in his book. He says, if you're married, you're a leader. If you have a family, you're a leader. If you work with a team, you're a leader. If you have a little working group where you work, you're a leader. You're executive, you're a leader. If you have influence, you're a leader. And what's the key here? The secret to spiritual leadership is to lead out of a posture of utter dependence upon God. Let's pray about a way for God to find leaders who are utterly dependent upon Him. That's what we need to be praying for. Blessed is the church that has leaders utterly dependent upon Him. Blessed is the denomination that has leaders who are utterly dependent upon Him. Blessed is the university that has leaders who are utterly dependent upon Him. Blessed is the marriage that has a couple utterly dependent upon Him. It doesn't matter who, where you are. Utterly dependent upon Him. That's the secret. Lesson number one, start strong, depend on God. Lesson number two, stay strong, depend on God. Jot that down, please. Stay strong. Don't just start strong. The whole point is you've got to stay strong. Stay strong. Depend on God. By the way, King Solomon, whose own life was a morality tale of how not to live by not depending on God. King Solomon nailed it. When he wrote these words, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, didn't your mother tell you this as a kid? Well, my mom drilled this one, huh? Didn't work, but she drilled it. Pride goes before destruction 
and a haughty spirit before a fall. Every king that I would, I just got to random through my mind. King Saul starts out humble, turns proud. King David starts out humble, turns proud. King Solomon starts out humble, turns proud. It must be, it must kind of be a, an occupational hazard with high leadership. Asa starts out strong, turns proud. Joshphat starts out right, turns proud. Uzziah starts out strong, turns proud. What's up with that? God is trying to raise up leaders to take his people into the promised land. They started dependent on him, but they didn't remain dependent on him. They started strong, but they didn't stay strong. We need to pray for leaders that God will give us who will stay strong to the bitter end. Ah, but it's lesson number three that catches us by surprise. I'm telling you, jot it down, will you? Lesson number three. Beware the cup that is full. Beware the cup that is full. The morality tale of King Uzziah's life, that's the lesson right there. Beware the cup that is full. Remember the two cups of the children's story? That's it right there. It's the full cup. Some of you are going through life right now with very full cups. Proud of you, happy for you. But you must know that the full cup is the challenging one. Not the empty one. Uh, A century ago, these words were written. You'll you'll need to fill them in. The cup most difficult to carry is not the cup that is empty, but the cup that is full to the brim. It is this that needs to be most carefully balanced. Affliction and adversity bring disappointment and sorrow, but it is prosperity. Would you write that down, please? It is prosperity that is most dangerous to spiritual life. I mean, isn't this an observed reality that that riches and wealth have proven more dangerous to the soul of men and women than poverty? I mean, have you kind of sensed that through life? Isn't it an observed reality that those who seem to imbibe only of life's successes are in greater danger than those whose life drinks deeply of adversity and disappointment and sorrow? Beware! Beware the cup that is full, for it is the cup most difficult to carry. How, did, how do we read just a moment ago? But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Beware the cup that is full. And right here, let's, let, let's radically shift gears for a moment. I need to ask you this question. Could it be that what is salient and true for individuals could also be salient and true for institutions? For churches, could it be? So that rather, so that the greatest challenge the church today is facing is not her adversity, but her prosperity. The greatest challenge the church today is facing, not her great needs, but rather her great deeds. Remember the taunt, the church of Laodicea, that Grace read for us just a moment ago. Remember these words? Laodicea taunting Christ. <laughs> Look, please. You don't know who you're dealing with. I'm rich. The seventh church, the last church. I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. And I have need of nothing. I have need of nothing. Wow. No sense of dependency on God at all. I have need of nothing, she boasts. When in truth, Christ retorts, what do you mean? You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Please. Look at you. In a few days... We'll display, we will share with the city of Atlanta our good deeds. I predict there might even be a television camera or two there covering the report. 
And you know what? We ought to praise God for every one of those. Don't misunderstand me. We ought to thank God for every good deed there is. But if our good deeds, like Laodicea, only mask our great need, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Please. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. But after he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. I have need. I don't need anything. Nada. Nothing. I don't need it. Beware the cup that is full. Could it be true that what, what is salient for individuals is also true for institutions, true of the church? So that as long as the church and her leaders and her people are dependent upon God, collectively dependent upon God, they will experience the kingdom successes that only He can bring. You say, hey, come on, Dwight. Well, how would a church show that, that she is dependent on God? Ah, you read this book through from cover to cover. I'm convinced there is one dominant way for a church and her leaders to, to evidence that they are dependent upon God. And here it is. Jot it down, will you? Nothing. Nothing signals corporate dependence upon God more strongly than collective prayer. I believe that with all my heart. Nothing. Signals corporate dependence upon God more strongly than collective prayer. Not a little prayer here and a little prayer there. Calling all the people to prayer. What did Jehoshaphat do? Calls the whole nation to prayer. What do Peter and the apostles do? Calls the whole, they call the whole church to prayer. Nothing signals our dependency upon God more strongly. That's why, that's why, by the way, we had a day of fasting and prayer last week. It's nothing about us. But it was to somehow bring into sharper focus in our own minds our utter dependency upon God if we're ever going to move from dead center. It's the spiritual role of leaders to call their people to prayer. Collective prayer. Corporate prayer. If there's a leader in our midst on this planet, ah, I just pray, God, just lay the burden of that collective praying upon the hearts of our leaders. They're good, they're good leaders. I know them all. But nothing will signal our dependency more, more forcefully, more strongly than collective prayer. Jot this one down while you're at it. Nothing triggers our corporate dependence upon God more forcefully than collective danger. Boy, isn't that the truth? It's when we're in trouble. Well, there, that triggers our corporate dependence. Do you suppose that's why historically it's always been the persecuted church, the church suffering in adversity, that is a church that explodes in growth? And just a year ago today, Karen and I were in the Alpine Valleys of northwest Italy in the Waldensian region, went into the cave a year ago today. Why did the Waldensian church keep burning brightly through the dark Middle Ages? Why? Because under adversity... They flourished. You want to talk about the Seventh-day Adventist church today? Let's talk about the church in China. Some of you are from China. I'm talking about communist China. Why is a church growing like gangbusters in China and here in North America and Australia and Europe, the, the secular West? Nothing. Why? Because adversity. Nothing triggers collective dependence like persecution and adversity. I found this line. Just last week, in that little apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy, put it on the screen for you. You have to fill it in. Boy, is this right or what? By defeat, they, the church, conquered. Isn't that good? They won by defeat. Didn't I tell you? The failures to you are actually victories to God. 
The problem is you and I keep saying, no, God, I have to have a victory that looks like this, has to smell like this, has to feel like this. God says, hey, no, trust me. I'm the one who decides whether it's a failure or a victory. Let me give you what I give you. The church is under adversity. Explode. Which is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, this, this line, For when I am weak, then... There's somebody who's weak. She's, she's going to get weaker. What did Paul write? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can we say that collectively? For when we are weak, then we are strong. It is the weakness of the church that enables her to be possessed by God and unleashed in ways God has never seen in recent history. We ought to quit begging God to take the failures away and maybe allow the failures to be His avenue to to a win-win for the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Dwight, then, great. So should I be praying then for crisis in my life? Should we, should we be praying for a crisis in the life of the church? Never. Never, never, never. Don't you ever pray for crisis. Trust me, it'll come soon enough whether you pray for it or not. No, i tell you what let's do. I want to share this with you. There's no more compelling, no greater prayer than this prayer of Christ in the face of His own crisis. And I want to end with this. I want you to take a look. I believe that this prayer, ladies and gentlemen is the greatest prayer in all of sacred literature to express your dependency upon God. If you get this prayer... By the way, this is a prayer you pray when you need forgiveness. This is a prayer you pray when your marriage is going down the tubes. This is a prayer you pray when you're financially... You're bankrupt. This is a prayer you pray when professionally... It's all downhill. This is a prayer you pray when you are in absolute need. This is the greatest prayer of dependency you can ever pray found in Scripture. I want to end with this. Go to Luke 23. Find the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 23. This is the greatest prayer. If you'll memorize this prayer, you'll never have to worry about a spirit of dependency if you will pray this prayer with all your heart. This is the prayer of Christ on the cross. Luke 23. Drop down to verse 46. By the way, easy to remember this prayer and its reference. 23, doubled 46. I want to remember that prayer. Where was it found? Luke 23, 46. Memorize this prayer and you will always find yourself in a state of of dependency upon God. Isn't this something? Verse 46, And Jesus called out with a loud voice. And by the way, in the Greek, it's megalephone, with a megaphone. Jesus called out with a megaphone. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when He had said this, He breathed His last. There it is. Can you memorize this prayer? Put it on the screen for you. Father, Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Any crisis, that's the prayer of dependency. Whether your cup is full right now, some of you have some some goblets that are spilling over. It's so full and I'm so happy for you. Praise God. Some of you have goblets, you could turn it upside down. Not a drop in there. Where is this thing? Where are all these blessings that my friends have, that my family has? How come I don't have the blessings? Don't you worry about whether your cup is empty or full. God will take care of your goblet. Whether it's full or empty, the dependency is the same. Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Laodicea, who needs nothing and who parades her accomplishments before herself, is in need of praying the one prayer of dependency that Calvary offers. You pray this prayer at the foot of the cross. Father, into your hands I commit 
my spirit. It's the greatest prayer of dependency in the world. Memorize it. Memorize it. I want to show you the foot of the cross right here. The way this, this, this new platform is configured, it's now walnut wood, so that's why it's so dark, and that's why you can notice it now from the pew much more, because before it was just stained a different color. But I want to show you something, because Reg Matson, who is the, uh, who's the, the, the uh, leader in the business, he said, hey, Dwight, you can put anything you want at the foot of the cross. He said, I'll give you a little iron. This is hot. You can, you can burn. You can etch in these, whatever you wish. So I said, I'm, I know what I'm going to do. So I got down here. I don't know if you can see this. Can you see it on the uh, screen? 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Every time a preacher comes to the Pioneer Memorial Church and stands right here, here's the reminder. You know what 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 reads? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Every time you preach in the Pioneer Memorial Church, I want you to notice you are standing always. Any preacher, she, he, doesn't matter. You're standing at the foot of the cross in this church. You know why? Because that's the only place of dependency that's left. You go to the foot of the cross, you can pray the prayer, Father, into your hands. I commit everything. I commit my little girls to you. I commit my career to you. I commit my finances to you. I commit it all into your hands. I commit my spirit. Wouldn't you like to live with that prayer as your guiding prayer? Well, I want to live that way, don't you? Oh, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. I want to sing that with you. And as we sing just one stanza of that hymn, we'll give you an opportunity to say to Jesus in the quiet of your heart, Oh God, into your hands I commit my life. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. Why not? Why not, given the world we're in? Black swan, white swan, it doesn't matter. It's time to commit our lives into those nail-scarred hands.